Chapter 12 Inside Stella's head, a death storm of vagueness had overtaken her. She shook her head to clear it. What on earth was she doing in a storage room? She was a school librarian. It was an hour before the bell to end morning classes, and she wanted a cup of tea. So she strolled out of the storage room across the corridor and into the staff room. There she looked about her, taking in the cabinets and the plastic chairs about the laminate table, where half a muffin sat among its crumbs on a paper napkin. This staff room was new to her, but nearly all school staff rooms were much alike. There would be tea in the cupboard above the sink. What kind of tea, exactly, you never knew. It might be berry tea, or even the devil ginseng. If she was lucky, she would find orange pickle. She pulled open both doors above the sink. There, on the second shelf, a pot-bellied kettle trailed its long cord among a scattering of blue paper sweetener packets. A motley crew of mugs stood about on the shelf above the kettle, and on the right side of it sat a box of orange pico tea. Lately, she'd been on an Earl Grey kick, but orange pico would do. Would do very nicely, in fact. It was a business to get the kettle down from its shelf. With its trailing cord, it seemed to be part cat and knocked several packets of sweetener into the sink. Don't hurry yourself, Stella told herself. And not too much water in the kettle. You're not heating water for a bath, her mother added sotto voice and in Stella's ear. She plugged in the kettle and stood leaning against the sink, hands in her pockets to warm her fingers, which often felt a little cold. There was a bit of paper in her pocket. It felt like paper money. How nice to find a bit of unexpected cash in your pocket. Perhaps this would be enough money for milk and butter to be picked up after work on her drive home from school. Inside her pocket, she folded the bit of money between her fingers and watched the kettle. One of the mysteries of the beverage-drinking world was that the more you wanted a cup of tea, the longer a kettle took to boil. Kettles were indeed like cats. You had to act as if you didn't care what they did. Turning her back on it, she wandered over to the staff fridge, which was stocked with a six-pack of Diet Cola and several bags that looked like they might be people's lunches. She wished to look inside, but decided it was really none of her business and shut the fridge with a thump. She well knew that in every staff room there were wheels within wheels. People were quick to take offense about snooping into their lunches. She smelled coffee from a plastic-lined garbage bin half-filled with empty cardboard coffee cups. She remembered suddenly that coffee nowadays cost as much as five dollars a cup. Stella wrinkled her nose. Woolworths in Carisdale used to charge 35 cents for a cup of tea at the lunch counter. As an extra, you received a pleasant sense of elevation as you hoisted your behind onto the red Nagahide stool where you could twist your seat back and forth while you waited for your tea. These days, every, 
you went, your tea bag came in a little pack beside a cooling mug of water, and you'd have to fumble with the packet and erase to get the tea bag into the water in time for something close to the hot drink you paid for. But thirty or forty years ago, if you sat at the counter at Woolworth's, they brought your tea in a stainless steel teapot, the little square of paper flapping from its string out of the spout like a tiny flag. The teapot handle burned your fingers at first. That was how beautifully hot it was, and you only poured half the tea into your squat, thick white cup, none of those enormous hoggish cardboard cups, so that you could get them to pour more hot water on your bag into the stainless steel teapot. For 35 cents, you could keep that one tea bag on the go for an hour or more. She sighed. In the same way that the tea at Woolworth's would be a little weaker as it got older and more used up, Stella felt a certain affinity with the tea bag on its fourth go-round. She chose a blue mug from among its less handsome brothers. Although she couldn't see a teapot, she had the basic building blocks for tea. She pulled down a tea bag from the box, noting with pleasure as she did that even in this day and age, the manufacturers of the tea took the trouble to attach to each tea bag a little flag with a pretty flowered emblem on it. With the same sort of care, she set the tea bag inside the blue mug and hung the little flag neatly on the outside rim. Just as the kettle began to boil, Stella put her hand into her pocket. Something was inside. Money! She'd completely forgotten it was there. What was it? A five? A twenty? She pulled out the thousand-dollar bill and stared down at it. First, she remembered why she had it. Second, she decided that she might have made an error in taking it. Third, and in a mad dash to be out of Fairmount's staff room before she was discovered, she made herself a cup of tea. Not everybody her age would have enjoyed crouching down and sliding rear-end first around the folding art table in the storage room across the hall from the staff room, pulling a cup of tea along with her. But now that she had returned from forgetfulness to sanity, she needed to think, and the table, with its plastic-smelling cover, gave her privacy, a blessed thing in this place of unlocked bedroom doors almost as blessed as the cup of tea. What she needed to think about was this. How could she use the money to save Cheryl's job? She sipped and contemplated the options available to her. Perhaps the best thing would be to tear it into bits and flush it down the toilet. Then the director couldn't prove Cheryl had ever had it. But a thousand dollars? Down the toilet? Unthinkable. Stella drained the last drops from the mug and the tea bag bumped her lightly on the nose. She still had not decided what to do with the money in her pocket, but she felt a hundred times better. A thousand times better. Maybe instead of flushing the money, she ought to figure out who else could have stolen the other bills, eighteen of them. Eighteen thousand dollars was a strange sort of number. 
a large amount of money, but not so much that you could consider yourself rich if you had it. Happy to get it, maybe, but not exactly rich. Stella sucked her upper lip. Of course. There had to be more money than just 18000 She remembered the album she had towed open in the effects cupboard, the album with Alice McAndrew's photo in it. What had it been doing in there? Perhaps somebody had found the quiet closet and emptied the album of bills hidden between the pages. There might be other albums, too, with even more money hidden inside. She touched her tongue to the smooth rim of the mug and murmured to herself, Who done it? Who done it? Who done it? All the evidence pointed to Cheryl having taken all those bills from the coin album, but Cheryl was honest. So who was it? Holly, perhaps? He was so often around and could hide anything in that sunny yellow trolley of his. Or Bellamy, Mrs. McAndrew's only relation and hope for the continuation of the clan name? Or maybe the director herself, Mrs. Perdita Warner, who had searched the room for the antique coin and might easily have found the money. How terrible if the thief turned out to be any of these. Ideally, the perpetrator would be somebody from outside, a passing robber who had spied through the window as the dragon pawed her treasures and awaited an opportunity to slip inside. It would be easy pickings. Alice McAndrew was certain that she kept an unblinking eye on her family treasures, but she was in the washroom more often than her Swiss clock cuckooed. With care not to dislodge the green plastic cover, Stella scooted carefully back from the from underneath the table. She left the blue mug with its limp tea bag behind in her secret hiding place as a sort of marker, the way astronauts left a flag on the moon. Then, fiddling thoughtfully with the bill in her pocket, she wandered down to the front entry to look out the window at the daffodils and think the case over. She arrived just a moment too late. There before her, on the other side of the glass door, was a heart-rending sight. Cheryl, wearing her blue coat, was heading away from Fairmount Manor, down the little walk with its striped awning toward the driveway. In her arms, she held a small box. Stella couldn't make out the individual contents, but the box seemed to be filled with bits and pieces, including a pot with a hyacinth that had not yet begun to bloom. A nasty feeling took Stella by the shoulders. She had wondered whether she should have taken the money from Cheryl's pocket, and now she knew the answer. Or rather, she could see the outcome of her act. Despite accusations of theft, it was obvious that Cheryl had not been fired. Dismissals, with their reviews and reports and paperwork, took weeks or longer. There had not been time to discharge the care worker. No... When the honest Cheryl had been unable to return the money that Stella had stolen from her, Cheryl had quit.
this hurried departure was Stella's fault. Thus, it was up to Stella to put things right, and quickly, too. Stella hauled on the door handle, but it didn't open. Could not, without the door key. Stella hurried to the reception kiosk and peered through the window at the desk, but the little room was empty of anybody who could open the door. She looked both ways along the corridor, but saw nobody. She might have run along the corridors, searching for Ollie or Reliza, or any resident with key code status, but a glance at the front door told her that she was too late, for here, along the driveway, came the next in the series of unhappy outcomes. Cheryl's husband driving that shiny silver car. Cheryl's husband and children would be inside the car, perhaps wondering why on earth she wanted to ride home so early in her workday. Stella ran back to the front door and pounded on the glass. When Cheryl didn't turn, Stella punched numbers into the keypad at random, but the door remained shut. Stella slumped against the glass, powerless to prevent the gleaming vehicle from pulling up in front of Cheryl. No sooner had the back car door slid open than Cheryl's three children, like small birds, fluttered out to alight about her. They attached themselves to her arms, to her legs. Children were weightless, Stella remembered. With their small bones and lightness of their hope and love, you could pick them up as if they were made of feathers and set them on your hip. Cheryl did so now with the smallest of the three. This was a tousle-headed little girl. Stella's arm, acting of itself, rose from her side and curved around the remembered shape of Junie's close embrace. Shh, Stella whispered to her daughter down the long corridors of life. Don't cry. We'll find a way to set things right. Stella found her own words of comfort impossible to believe. Nor did Cheryl's spendthrift husband, meanwhile, appear happy with his wife's decision to leave her job. So abruptly did he hustle his offspring and then Carol herself into the car that Stella stared in disbelief. Did the husband not notice that when Cheryl climbed inside, her fingers were still resting on the top sill of the car door? Or might he deliberately have moved so quickly to slam it shut? Only an instant separated Cheryl from serious injury. But she had released the door, and her fingers were safe, just in time. But even a spendthrift could make a mistake slamming at a car door, and even an idle man could truly love his wife. Which left only a single question that Stella had to answer for the good of this little family, and for her own benefit as well. How would it ever be possible to get Cheryl back to Fairmount Manor again? Chapter 13 The tone would soon sound for lunch, but Stella couldn't think about food. While her mind was still chewing on Cheryl's departure from Fairmount, Stella wandered into Corridor Park. 
She gave little attention to occupants in the chairs along the walls, and so she paid a price. Someone caught her ankle. The hallway tilted like a cartoon spaceship. There followed a long, drawn-out moment where all thought was dashed from her mind, all except a grim black outline notice reading, This is it. Your day to go out, Stella, and your final act in this world was to make Cheryl quit. But just as she reached the tipping point from which no falling body can return, Stella felt a pair of arms come round her, a body pressed against her back, and she and her salvation tottered there for a moment until the hallway righted itself, and Stella, breathing hard, looked up into a pair of watery but very blue eyes. Of all the male residents of Fairmount Manor, Theo Longbourn had the finest head of hair. She looked at him, up at him and said, Thank you. I thought I was a goner. She became conscious that he was still holding her by her forearms. Suddenly, his hands began to tremble, and he let go. You're welcome, he said, and as far as she could recall, this was the first time he had addressed a word to her directly. Stella, I've always wanted to ask you. She never found out what he always wanted to ask, because <clears throat> just then, Theo stepped on her foot and apologized. Stella was hardly conscious of his misstep. All she could think was that for the first time in a number of years she had been touched by a man who was not a medical professional. To her surprise, this moment recalled the old days and dancing with some fresh-faced, red-eared boy who trod on her toe. As a woman, it was up to her to take control of the situation, so she looked up at him and said what a woman was meant to say. You're very strong. And it was true. He might tremble, but he had caught her and had not let her fall. From behind them, somebody laughed. Somebody on the far side of the corridor. Somebody with a wicked, dry laugh. Thelma Hugh. Thelma was sitting a little way down from the three women Stella had, for excellent reason, dubbed the Greek Chorus, and it was Thelma's cane that had entangled itself with Stella's ankles. But Stella knew that was not why the blind woman was laughing at her. Stella felt the color rise in her cheeks. Across the corridor, the three members of the Greek Chorus, Iolanth, Lucille, and the especially unfriendly woman Stella thought of as the Nodder, looked up from their needlework. Iolanth and Lucille eyed Stella with unblinking serenity, but she caught a truly poisonous stare from the Nodder. It's a sin how hard the linoleum is in this place, Iolanth set her cruel work uh, down in her lap. To Iolanth's right, Lucille, the second member of the Greek chorus, jabbed a large needle in Stella's direction. Fall on that floor and it's murder, 
Murder by linoleum. In the first degree. Ilanth looked pleased. Lucille held up her needle and thread, and the nodder, the third and final member of the Greek chorus, snipped off Ilanth's thread with a small pair of scissors. Just how much easier would it be for the staff to run things if we all broke our necks? Well, some of us, certainly. Theo looked obliquely down at Stella, who trapped her lips between her teeth so as not to laugh out loud. A tone sounded from the direction of the dining room. Island said, Lunchtime. Something indigestible as usual? Murder by cabbage, Lucille agreed, although the smell in the hall was certainly recognizably that of macaroni. On Lucille's left, the nodder nodded. As if by a signal, and the tone that sounded lunch was, after all, just that. Theo turned away from Stella. He offered his arm to the nodder. She looked up and then rose, queen-like, to her feet. The nodder took Theo's arm and they walked away toward the dining room while Iolanth and Lucille tidied their needlework into quilted bags and followed after them. Stella found herself standing alone in Corridor Park. Or rather, not quite alone. Behind her there remained the author of the mocking laugh. She heard the tap of metal on linoleum and turned to see blind Thelma who sit in her seat. As Stella faced her, Thelma screwed up her face. If you expect me to say I'm sorry for tripping you, you're in for a long, cold afternoon's wait, Thelma said. She sat one she sat one hand on the other atop the end of her cane, as if to stop Stella from taking it away from her. Chapter fourteen Lucille glared at the little round speaker overhead wired into Corridor Park's ceiling. Was the lunch tone late again? My cat kept better time than these people do. I could eat a chateau brine for two, Ilanth mused. The nodder nodded. Stella turned to Thelma. You tripped me on purpose, didn't you? Not for the first time in proximity to Thelma Hugh, Stella felt her temper expand against its seams. And all this time I thought you didn't know what you were doing with that cane of yours. Thelma, blind eyes hooded, shrugged. Above her head a poster featuring a dead branch on an arid landscape was stapled to the burlap-covered bulletin board. Lettered large among the poster was the sentiment Something lost brings something found. Something gained brings another loss. This oppositional bit of nonsense on top of Thelma's laugh and shrug so irritated Stella that she turned her back to it and sat herself down in her usual chair next to Thelma. Thelma, I'm too old to be falling on the linoleum. Watch where you put your cane. I would. 
but I'm blind, Thelma retorted. She turned her head shortly. Who's that coming? Thelma's hearing was acute. Stella hadn't heard a thing. But now light, youthful footsteps sounded, and here came Mrs. Alice McAndrew's granddaughter on her way to her weekly lunchtime visit with her grandmother. Young Bellamy was Mrs. McAndrew's only regular visitor, and Stella had often watched the young woman pass through Corridor Park on her way out to the foyer. As always, Bellamy walked with light steps, her apparently excellent spirits supporting her in all the correct places. The plain fact was that Bellamy was so young that Stella could no more resent her for her bounding hair and easy step than she could begrudge a kitten its youth. From her seat beside Thelma, Stella smiled at Bellamy. Bellamy smiled back. Stella heard a stealthy hiss of metal on linoleum. She reached out in time to grip Thelma's cane before she could trip the girl up. With long, youthful strides, Bellamy walked by them, her large bag bumping against the back of her jacket. She would never know how close she had come to taking a tumble. Stella stared after her. That really was a very large handbag. A student's handbag of a capacity to handle textbooks and maybe even a binder or an album, coin album, photo album. She says slowly, Thelma, if an elderly person is being robbed of all her money, who's the first person you suspect? Thelma smacked her cane against the floor. Her accountant. Well, outside Fairmount, maybe, but living here, it would have to be somebody who was often inside her room. Don't beat around the bush, Thelma said. I hear the rumors just like everybody else. Are you asking whether Cheryl stole money from cranky old Alice McAndrew? Cranky? Who's talking? But if you leave Cheryl out of it, Stella asked, who then is the most likely thief? Stella already knew the answer, but she didn't like it. Thelma granted. You mean, the thief is not the trusted care worker? Well, then it's a member of the family. Stella sat quite still as Ollie came round the corner towards them. For such a large man, he moved quickly like a great liner speeding across the Atlantic Sea. Stopping before them, Ollie said, Better hit the chow line, ladies, before all the good nosh is gone. I'm not hungry, Thelma said. Now, Thelma, denial is a river in Africa, Ollie chuckled. We all need to eat. Do you want me to help you down to the dining room? What? Do you think I'm blind? Thelma grumbled. I'll go with her, Stella told him. That's the way you pair of outlaws, Ollie laughed, headed back toward the dining room and called over his shoulder. Unholster your six shooters and hold up the chow wagon together. 
Stella attempt to, attempted to help Thelma to her feet and got a bash from the cane for thanks. Of course it was the granddaughter who stole the money, Thelma said. Young people don't have the same morality we do. Stella frowned. She thought, but did not say aloud, That's just what a grouchy old girl like you would think. Same to you, Thelma said, with knobs on. I didn't say that out loud. Stella shook her head as they walked along the corridor in the direction of the smell of wet pasta. Did I? Thelma replied, Ha! You'll never know. <laughs>